back because it either means that one, it wasn't too terrible last time or the pastor really needed a break. I made that joke last time. It was interesting. This time she actually told me when she called me last month that it was because this uh, week was really busy and she needed the stand-in. So I guess the question has been answered. But it's been fun. Actually, this is a little different for me because the other two times I preached, there was something going on that kind of like determined what I preached. So the first time I had just gotten back from the mission field. And so, of course, when you do that, you tell stories from the mission field. And then the second time was halfway through December. So, of course, you do a Christmas sermon. This time I get like creative freedom. It's a little scary. I can do anything. So I was going back and forth, almost anything. It's a little scary. I was going back and forth. I was thinking, like, do I do exposition on a Bible passage or do I preach from the book that we've been doing? And then I ended up having an idea that was a little weird. And if you know me, I like weird things, so I decided to go with that one. There's a particular type of uh, sermon that you get sometimes in China that you don't get as often here in the States. We call it the the anti-heresy sermon or the anti-false teaching sermon. And I thought it was a little fun kind of wanted to preach one. So there's a problem in China right now, and it's there are worse problems to have. It's that the church in some areas is growing so much that they actually can't keep up with discipleship. So in some areas of China, the church has grown so much that we have as few as one trained pastor or leader for a thousand believers. And another problem that kind of goes hand in hand with that is that the best translation of the Chinese Bible we have right now was several decades ago, and it's kind of in older Chinese language, kind of the same as like we would consider the old King James. It's a little difficult for people to read. So a problem that you can get when you have so few discipled leaders and people can't um, understand their Bible extremely well is you get rampant cults. So this is a major problem in China. It's one of the main things that I do when partnering with the local church is doing teaching and discipleship because this is a desperate need. And it's a really interesting cross-cultural experience when you hear your first anti-heresy sermon because our pastor, Pastor Twen, he has to preach these maybe like once a month because the cults are so rampant in our area. And it's, it's interesting because if you're an American, particularly if you're a Minnesotan, Midwesterner, we have this like 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. And they they don't have that in China. Uh, they can't really afford to with this. And so Pastor Chuen, when he stands up to do this, he'll be very direct. He'll say, uh, you know, these are false teachings. Uh, this is a cult. The people who follow it aren't true Christians. They are sons of Satan. They're trying to lead you astray. And I mean... Standing up here in a Minnesotan church, I almost feel anxious just quoting that. I'm like, I, I want to be like Pastor Twen. Pa- pa- Pastor Twen, you can't just say that somebody's not a true Christian. You can't call people sons of Satan. But then, like, if you read the Bible, Jesus tells that to the Pharisees. And after a while, it actually like you get used to it, and it starts to feel a little refreshing because what he's doing when he's saying that is he's doing something that's really unpopular in our culture. Is he's saying you know what, I, I know truth. Uh, he is making the claim that I know that what I'm teaching is true and what they're teaching is false, and the reason I know that is because I am standing on the objective truth that I find in the Word of God. And that is a very powerful thing. I'm going to come back to that. 
I was talking about how he's preaching against the cults. I actually had my own experience with some of these cultists while I was over there. I was within my first uh, six months or so, so I was still a little bit new. I, uh, I had been sitting in a restaurant in Shenyang, and this very sharp-dressed Korean gentleman comes up to me, and he sits at my table. That's not actually unusual. It's kind of hard to be an introvert in China, because if you're, if you're alone, they'll just come up and sit next to you. I kind of like to eat alone, but I don't get to do that very often. Well, he started talking to me about faith questions, so I got excited, because I, I like that sort of thing. But then he, uh, after we're getting into this conversation, he leans towards me and says, so have you heard about our Heavenly Mother? Now, I've heard about this cult from Pastor Chuen. This is really popular in our area of Shenyang. There's this cult of the Heavenly Mother. And what this cult teaches, I, I made a joke last time about preaching heresy from the pulpit. Now I'm actually going to preach some heresy from the pulpit. What this, church pre- or what this cult preaches is that they say that the second coming of Christ already happened. It was this uh, Korean guy who started their cult. And he made all these teachings, and he got a big following, and then something kind of awkward for them happened as uh, he died unexpectedly, and uh, he, he did not come back to life. But his, uh, his wife saved the cult. He, she stood up and said, actually, no, he was the su- second coming of Christ, but you see, all of this happened so that you could learn that uh, God has a wife, the Heavenly Mother, and I'm actually the Heavenly Mother incarnated, and now she leads the cult. And this is, there, there are actually millions of people who believe this. And I, so I met one of these guys. He came up. He was sitting at my table. He asked me, do you know about the Heavenly Mother? He wanted me to uh, come and have a meeting with him and some of the other people so that they could teach me this. They were inviting me to join their cult. So I was kind of excited. I'd never been invited to join a cult before. So I, I agreed to meet with them. I got his number. I, I saved it into my phone under my contacts as cultist because he didn't give me his name which it raised a couple of eyebrows at our next team meeting because somebody looked over my phone and was like, why are you receiving text messages from a cultist? But, <laughs> but I could tell that this was a very serious and, and classy gentleman, so he wanted to meet with me, and I suggested the most serious and classy location I could think of. So the next day, we met outside the Play Palace at the local McDonald's. And, and was, okay, maybe you can tell I was having a little bit of fun with him, but... I, I did have a serious meeting for a reason for wanting to meet with these guys. I'm actually, uh, I'm very protective of the little flock that God has given me in China. And I kind of wanted to know what these guys were teaching and how they would justify it from scripture so that I could know what to teach the students that I've been given. And I wanted to see if I could convince them to of the actual gospel, but I didn't have much luck there. They were very entrenched, unfortunately. But it was interesting. It's the way they do it. These guys are really good. So there's two or three people that come and they're all these very sharp-dressed, fancy-suited, good-looking people, very intelligent. And they don't come right out and just use the, the silly stuff trying to tell you about the Heavenly Mother right away. First, they try to get you off balance. They try to, to convince you of some things that are a little easier to try to convince you of. So they'll ask you if you brought your Bible. And then they'll take your Bible, and they'll open it up to a place in the Old Testament. And they'll say, did you know that your church worships wrong? They'll say, did you know that actually traditionally the Sabbath was on a Saturday? They're right about that. So they'll say, your, your church is worshiping wrong. And maybe you don't know where to look. It would be in Acts 
to show that actually there is precedent in the Bible that we moved worship to a Sunday after Jesus' resurrection. But maybe you don't know that, so you're a little on your back foot already. He just showed you from your Bible that your church is worshiping wrong. That's weird. And then he, he goes further. He'll open up to another passage. He'll say, "Did you? how many crosses does your church have? Did you know your Bible says not to make any graven image? Your church is full of idols. And then you say, well, wait a minute. Now, the, the cross isn't an idol. But he'll say, no, no, no. And they're all agreeing with each other. This is why they bring more than one person. They're all looking at each other, and they're shaking their head like you're an idiot. And they're saying, hey, the Bible says no graven images. You're just stating an opinion that it's not an idol. And they get you really off balance and you're flustered and they show you several of these things. And then when you're really uncomfortable and you're feeling like, what's going on here? That's when they start doing this weird stuff about the Heavenly Mother. Actually, I, do I have time to tell you one of the things that they did? I think I do. Oh, I dropped my thing. So one of the scriptures that they used when they were trying to convince me of this is they turned to the gospel where Jesus is telling the story about the rich man and the beggar who both died. And so the beggar goes and is with Abraham, and then the rich man is burning, but they can see each other. Jesus is telling this story to illustrate. And the cultist will say, see, in this passage, Abraham represents God. And since Abraham represents God, we look back in the Old Testament, we see that Abraham has a wife. Therefore, Jesus is trying to tell us by using Abraham to illustrate God, that God has a wife. I'm glad that I see some of you kind of going like this, because that makes no sense whatsoever. You can't read your Bible like that. But that was the point of why I was telling you all this, is that we need to know how to read our Bibles, how to read them and defend them, because they are the source of objective truth that we need to defend against cults or whatever lies that our culture is trying to tell us. Uh, fortunately, the Heavenly Mother cult has not gained much traction here in the West, although they are here. I, I read about that the other day. Uh, but our culture does have its own prominent falsehoods. Uh, last month during all of the holidays, I encountered a distant relative, and I, I broke one of the rules of being a Minnesotan or being an American. You're not supposed to talk about religion during the holidays. I broke the rule. And so we had this uh, dreaded holiday religious discussion. And I, so I found out that this distant relative, uh, he is a believer, and the fancy name for it is theistic relativism. It's that all religions are equally true. As long as you are a good person by some standard somewhere, you're going to get into heaven. I, I will bet $100 from the pulpit, and this is even being recorded, that everybody in the room knows somebody who believes that. I think it's probably the most prominent religious lie in the West. And so while we were having this discussion, uh, he, he asked the question, he made the comment, so you have this book you believe, you Christians, this Bible. But every other religion in the world also has a book. What makes yours so special? Actually, while I was writing the sermon, I was putting the finishing touches on it last night. Don't tell Pastor that I actually waited that long to do it. I was in the coffee shop, and actually I encountered a, uh, a young lady there who did the same thing. She actually believed that she was... She was watching me with my Bible out, and so she asked me the same question because I, I found out after our discussion that she was one of these theistic relativists. So she asked me, you know, you have this Bible. What makes it so special? Just last night, that's how common this is. It's actually a very good question, though. It's possibly the most important question for every Christian to be able to answer. 
Uh, because if we can show that the Bible is different from other holy books and that we have reason to believe it's true, uh, then we can defeat this cultural relativism and, and everything else. This is the foundation that we use. So it uh, took me a while to get there because I'm a little long-winded, but that's what I want to spend the rest of my time today talking about is I want to give you address three common myths that people will use to attack your Bible. And then in 1 Peter 3.15, the Bible says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. So I want to teach you a positive defense you can use if you are called to give a reason for why you believe the Bible. And these three myths that I'm going to go through, they're very common. They're so common, I have encountered all three of these within just the last couple months that I've been back in the States. So I think you will have heard of these. And hopefully, I think actually most of you know how to address them, but I'm going to go through them anyway. So myth number one, you can't trust the Bible because it's been translated so many times. You've heard that one, right? Okay, everybody's nodding their head. So I, I just saw someone post this on Facebook like two days ago, so it, it's still out there. So the story goes that the Bible is like a game of telephone, right? So the original documents were written in Greek and Hebrew, but then they were translated, and then that was translated, and then that was translated. It's like the game of telephone. I tell you something, he tells him something by the end of the... By the time we get to the end of the line, it's nothing like what I originally said, right? But the Bible wasn't actually translated like that. So this is one of the easiest ones to deal with. And when somebody tries to tell me this, I actually open my Bible to the first couple pages before you even get into Scripture. All of your Bibles will tell you how they were translated. And every time that they make a new biblical translation they don't go back to the latest translation and then update that into the new vocabulary. They go back to the original documents and they translate it from that. So instead of being like a game of telephone where I tell him something and he tells him something and he tells her something, it's more like I tell him something and then I tell him something and then I tell her something and then if there's any confusion, you can talk amongst yourselves and even ask me questions and figure out what it was I said. In fact, there's software available online today where if you want to, you can download the earliest documents that we have in Greek, and then you can go through with their dictionary that they've loaded into the software, and you can read the dictionary definition of every word and check our translations yourself. So if you ever have somebody use the translation argument on you, that's how you answer that one. It's pretty easy. Myth number two, this one is the really, really popular one. You can't trust the Bible because it's full of contradictions, right? I bet all of you have heard that within the last year. Anybody who hasn't heard that within the last year, go ahead and raise your hand. I think, yeah, I think this is the most common of the three. This came up in my discussion with my relative. This is one of the ones he used on me. I recently saw a list online where somebody had compiled 500 of these supposed contradictions. And it's interesting. I'm the, I'm the sort of person who's geeky enough that I actually read those things. Almost the entire list comes from people making one of two mistakes in how you read the Bible or understand it. Uh, people like to treat it like it's just one book and they don't understand that it's actually 66 books written over a long period of time. So one of the first major mistakes people make with the Bible is, is assuming that the entire thing was written at the same time and not being mindful of the age difference between some of the books. So for example, one of the contradictions on the list 
was one book gives a number for the soldiers in King David's army. And then another book gives a different number for the soldiers in King David's army. So people say, see, there's a contradiction. This one says this many soldiers. This one says this many soldiers. In reality, what they're not understanding is that the first book was written while King David was still alive. It gives the number of soldiers that were in his army at the time of writing. The second book was written decades after King David died. It gave the number of soldiers in his army at the time of his death. His army had grown between the two books. So that's not a contradiction. There are quite a few of the different uh, things like that. The other is not understanding how to read the, the narrative stories of the Bible. Sometimes a story will focus on different details. For example, I can give an example of me telling an actual story. This didn't actually happen. This is fiction. Otherwise, I'd get in trouble. But say I'm telling a story about getting into a car accident. I can tell the story one way. I can say, I was driving along at 30 miles an hour, and then I collided with this red Chevy. And about a half an hour later, three officers arrived at the scene, and so on and so on. I can give the exact details of what happened chronologically. Or I can tell the same story this way. I can say, I got into a car accident the other day. And after some time, an officer showed up, and I had a discussion with him, and I realized, actually, that I had gone to grade school with the officer's son, and so on and so on. And I can tell the same story, still factually accurate, but I'm focusing on different details. In that second story, I didn't mention the red Chevy. I didn't mention how many officers were at the scene. The Bible does this a lot. Uh, for example, in the Gospels, one of the ones on that contradiction list is... Uh, the number of angels outside of Jesus' tomb, you'll hear that a lot. One gospel says one angel, one gospel says two angels. It's not actually a contradiction. They're focusing on different stories. One gospel gives a little more detail of the interaction with one angel. So if you encounter those, actually, if you want to read it, one of my favorite authors, Jason Lyle, has downloaded one of these lists of 500 contradictions from the Internet. He goes through each one, one at a time, and shows how it's Basically, one of those two misunderstandings or a handful of others. That book is called Discerning Truth. I highly recommend it. If you can, if you can get good at that, I have never seen a contradiction that actually panned out. It's always a one of those two or a handful of others. And so when somebody uses this argument on me, the Bible is, can't be trusted because it's full of contradictions. I like to hand them my Bible and ask them to show me. And then usually you can spot one of those two. myself a little bit there. All right, last one. I have a story to go with this one. It's myth number three. I haven't countered this one as much as the other two, but I'm sure you've all heard it. You can't trust the Bible because it's been changed so many times, right? Have you heard that one? I had this one come up while I was in China. Uh, in China, we usually keep things a little divided. Uh, in discipleship, we usually have the uh, girl students are discipled by the girls, and I disciple the guy students. But sometimes if there's an apologetics issue, I'll be asked to like sit down with one of the girl students. And, and so we had this happen. There was one of the students named Leanna. Uh, she had this problem where somebody had told her, oh, you can't trust the Bible because it's been changed so many times. And it was so convincing, she was having this great uh, problem. She was really upset. She wanted to sit down with me. She's like, I feel like I'm losing my faith. Somebody told me that the Bible's been changed so many times. And so I got the story from her, and I asked, I asked the question. I, I feel a little like God in the Garden of Eden where he asked the question, who told you you were naked? And he already knows the answer. I already knew the answer when I asked the question, who told you this? Because 
I, I will give you this little piece of wisdom if you're ever working with teen girls or college-age girls. The problem is always the boyfriend. No matter what the problem is, the problem is always the boyfriend. And so the boyfriend had recently got a hold of a copy of the Da Vinci Code, which most of you are nodding now, fiction book, where the author tells a story about the Bible having been modified by the Roman Emperor Constantine. He was the emperor when Rome adopted Christianity as its official religion, and it's a really popular myth that this guy changed the Bible when he did that. And many, many people still believe this today. So I found the boyfriend, and I got them both together, and I sat them down to explain the, how you get out of this myth. The Bible was never changed by Constantine. Uh, I can say that with great confidence because we have over 6,000 manuscripts of the Bible that are older than Constantine, of just the New Testament. And we use those when we are translating the modern-day Bible. Also, within the first century, uh, Constantine was around 300 AD. Within the first century, the Bible had already left the confines of the Roman Empire. Uh, the Apostle Thomas, within a generation after Christ, had already taken the Bible to India. Others had taken it into South Africa. It had already been on three continents and translated into a dozen languages. Uh, unless Constantine secretly invaded dozens of countries across three continents, which is nowhere in history, he would not have been able to change the Bible. So that one is pretty easy to deal with if you can remember that history and explain it to someone. That one had a kind of entertaining conclusion because at first she had been so upset because the boyfriend had told her this and said, I, we, we can't be Christians anymore. They speak for both of them in China, the boyfriend does. We can't be Christians anymore because I read this book. And then I explained that to them. And the next day it was Sunday and he called her early and said, Leanna, are you up yet? We've got to go to church. We're Christians after all. So, so those were the three myths they're really easy to dispel, but they deceive a lot of people. But I don't want to stop there. I also want to be able to answer the challenge in First Peter to be able to give a positive defense. And I will try to do this quickly because I don't know what time it is right now. Okay, we're good. So one of my favorite teachers and apologists, Vodi Bakum, uh, he teaches this phrase that I think every Christian should know. And I'm going to use this directly because I read a quote the other day. It said, uh, good artists imitate and great artists steal. And I think the same is probably true of preaching. And I want to be a great preacher, so I'm just going to steal this directly from Bodhi. So the, <laughs> the phrase goes, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses and they report supernatural events occurring in the fulfillment of specific prophecy and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. You all memorized that on the first hearing, right? No? It's okay. I'm going to repeat it a couple times, and it'll be recorded online. He gets this from Second uh, Peter 1, 16 through 21, which we can take a look at. It should be up on the screen. Yes. He always gets that right before I get there. He's good. All right. For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. 
Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. So to break down Vodi's teaching, we have a reliable collection of historical documents. That's what those myths were about, right? Is establishing that what we have is what they originally wrote. It hasn't been mistranslated, it hasn't been changed, it doesn't contradict itself. It's a reliable collection of historical documents. And it was written by eyewitnesses. That's what Peter is saying. Look in that passage how many times he stresses this. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. We experienced this. He's saying we were eyewitnesses. And even better, they wrote during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. That's important because other eyewitnesses can contradict you if you're making stuff up. This you can get from uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James, and later by all the disciples, all the apostles, rather, Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So Paul is writing to the Corinthian church there. 500 followers saw Jesus after his resurrection. And in fact, I've been keeping close enough in touch with them that I know most of them are still alive, although some have died, and I'm following them close enough to know that too. That is a very bold claim to make in writing if it's false especially when you're writing to the Corinthian church that is tied to the church in Jerusalem and can check up on that. Uh, so he's making a falsifiable claim that there are all these eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ, and it was never falsified. That's a powerful piece of evidence. It gets even better. We have a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and they report supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecy. Do you know your Bible is full of specific prophecies? Not like the vague Nostradamus prophecies where like sometime this century there's going to be a war. Well, duh. But your Bible has specific prophecies. You read uh, Psalm 22, and King David, a thousand years before Christ, is giving specific details about the crucifixion of Christ down to things he'll say, what's going on around him, talking about him being his bones out of joint, his hands and feet pierced, very specific details about the crucifixion, and yet King David had never witnessed a crucifixion. I can say that with confidence because crucifixion wasn't invented until 500 years after King David died, and it wouldn't become popular as a means of execution until 100 years after that. If you take a look at the book of Daniel, we get specific prophecies about the conquests of Alexander the Great, uh, including who he's going to conquer and that he's going to die young and that his empire is going to split between his four generals. And that was written over a 100 years before Alexander the Great was born. In fact, the prophecies in Daniel are so specific that atheist scientists will try to ignore their own 
means of dating the documents because they say there's no possible way that these are as early as our methods are saying they are because who could have predicted this? And those are two among many, many examples. Finally, they claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin, and all of the apostles except one, John, died for that claim. They received no material benefit during their lives, and all of them were made martyrs by the Roman Empire. They died by beheading, by burning, by being fed to lions. They died by crucifixion, all for this claim. So you have 12 people at minimum who are willing to stake their lives on the truth of these words and all corroborating each other and never recanting. You contrast that with other religions, because the question was why the Bible instead of other holy books. Take a look at Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Smith. You have these other religious leaders. It's always one guy who goes to this place and says, I've received a revelation from God. And then he comes back and he gets some kind of benefit from it. Buddha got, uh, he went under the tree, he said he meditated, he received enlightenment, he was able to make all these sweeping reforms, he died a very respected man peacefully. Muhammad, he went up onto the mountain, he said, I received this message from the archangel Gabriel, and he came back and raised an army and founded an empire. You get Joseph Smith, I went into this cave, I received the Book of Mormon. We have 12 different people who are all corroborating each other, and they all died for the claim with no material benefit whatsoever. That's a piece of evidence that has to be weighed for the Bible. So putting all that together again, if you can remember the pieces of that, that's a very powerful defense you can give. We have a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, and they report supernatural events that occurred in fulfillment of specific prophecy and claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. I want to close with this. When Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, uh, before his crucifixion, uh, Pilate asked a question, very famous, what is truth? And he might as well have been speaking for our entire Western civilization. That's a question that's been in our culture for the last couple centuries. Uh, this is it. It's the word of God in written form. Uh, if you stand on this, nothing will ever overtake you. I hope that some of that, I know most of you guys have heard the myths, you already know how to deal with it. I hope that some of it was helpful to some of you next time you're called to give a defense for what you believe. Uh, this is the sort of teaching that I give often in China. It's something that they need a lot over there with the lack of discipleship. I have a great passion for bolstering the faith of believers, and dispelling the lies that they're bombarded with. So I've been up here to speak a couple of times. If any of the stories I've told you over there have spoken to you, if you've been impacted by them, if you have an interest in the ministry that we're doing over there and you haven't had a chance to connect with me yet, uh, I'm still in need of quite a few more monthly supporters before I can go back. It's been a slow support raising season. I, uh, I would invite you to come back if that's something that is interesting to you. Come back, eat some of my Chinese snacks, watch out for the wasabi peas. They're spicy, but maybe that'll be good today. Ask me questions, fill out a contact card. I'd be happy to come into town and get coffee with you, even if it's 33 below. Uh, we can talk more about this. Otherwise, I invite Pastor Lisa to come up and close this in prayer.
I had to give him a hard time. I said, obviously, 33 below or whatever it was out there, and you still managed to wear flip-flops. He assured me he does have a pair of winter boots, so don't feel like you got to rush out and buy him a pair of winter boots. He does have them because he was a deer hunter. So, But thank you, Eric, as always. We appreciate you sharing. And yes, I, I did have a busy week la this past week, and so it was great to have him be able to step in. gave me an opportunity to be a little bit more refreshed and get taken care of some things of year-end stuff that needed to be done. So, But um, it is true. We do need to know um, why the Bible we need to understand the truths that are, with, are held in between those covers. It is vital that we individually don't just rely on a Sunday morning to know what's in our Bibles. We do need to be reading. One of my prayers for our church this year was that we would be blessed as we delighted ourselves in the Word of God. And so I encourage you, you know, with our series, 52 Greatest Stories, our companion book, um, scripture, combining all of those resources um, to, to dig deeper into the Word of God and be blessed in that. So, well, let's close in prayer this morning. Again, invite you to come up for our baptism as well. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. You are so good and gracious to us. There is no one that comes before you, no one, Lord, that is equal to you. And you provide us with your truth which reveals who you are to us. And Lord, it is vital that we know who you are because when we understand who you are, which you reveal in your written word, Lord, we greater understand who we are in you. And Lord, it gives us that firm foundation to be able to stand. Lord, no matter what comes our way, no matter whether it come from a, a human being questioning whether it be from our enemy of our souls whispering lies to our minds and our hearts. Lord, when we know your word, we can stand in confidence because your word doesn't change. Your word is powerful. And your word is an anchor for us. And so, God, we just thank you for your word. May we take serious, Lord, that we need to be reading it and we need to be looking to you, Lord, for clarification through the power of your Holy Spirit. You will reveal it to us. And Lord, that we'd be able to defend our faith and not waver when someone questions us. And so, God, we thank you. Again, you are so good to us. Be with us as we go from this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless